Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, church. I had the privilege of being able to read the scripture this morning. It's a short passage, but a very powerful one. It's found in John 15, verses 15 and 16. And these are the words of Jesus. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is God's word. Well, it's always a privilege for me to be here. Is the is mic on? Yes, thank you. And it's just a real honor to be part of your missions program as well. Uh, you know, one of the most impactful movies that I've ever seen, I haven't watched a lot of movies, but this one, many, many years ago, I uh, actually saw it twice in two days. I've never done that for any other movie. It was Apollo 13. Some of you may have seen it. If you haven't, you should take a look at it. Uh, just a storyline very quickly by way of reminder, and for those who don't know, haven't seen the movie, it's the mission that got into trouble, as you know, and the landing had to be aborted, and the people, kind of, the three astronauts had to move into the, shut down the command module, move into the lunar module, and then wait for people back on Earth to try and discover the proper way in which to restart all the batteries on the command module when they would come back in. And if they didn't get it right, they'd be lost forever. And one of the guys who originally was supposed to go on the mission got, came into contact with somebody who had sickness, and so he couldn't go. He was angry and upset until he discovered that his colleagues were in trouble. And so he was woken up, and he happened to be an expert in this area. And so he goes to Houston Space Center, and he gets into the simulator. And the simulator is an exact reproduction of the command module. And so he is feverishly working out the right uh, startup sequence. While the guys up there, knowing that their lives are depending upon this fellow, are anxiously waiting for news. And at one point, he has worked something like seven, eight hours nonstop. And he says, I want to work in exactly the conditions they do, which means he's cold and uncomfortable. And the director of the space of the mission sticks his head into the margin. His name is Ken. He said, Ken, do you want a break? His response was etched in my mind forever. He said, if they don't get a break, I don't get one either. My mind instantly went to God's global agenda. Your reach, by the way, goes beyond the city to the world, and that's what you're thinking about these days. We don't have people lost in outer space, but there are millions and hundreds of millions of people who are lost in the darkness of sin, sickness, injustice. And the people who are not out there, like the Cassidy's and Lizette and others, us back home here, are crucially important to the mission. And the mindset that God wants us to have is exactly the same as he had. If they don't get a break, I don't get a break either. And so imagine yourself in that simulator back home. And by the way, if we're followers of Jesus, we're either in the shuttle or in the simulator. There's no other place. If you're not in the shuttle, you're in the simulator. You're automatically, you're not called to go, you're called to stay and get in that command module. 
And the single most important activity, I don't know what this guy had to do to develop the startup sequences, but we got three dials on that simulator, and the first, the biggest one is intercessory prayer. I have one goal in this whole message today, and that's to win a hearing for one single statement that God has tied the success of every dimension of the Great Commission to the prayers of ordinary people like you and me, whose names will never be known by most people. I don't have any trust in myself. I have trust in the power of God's word to persuade you and convince you. So you're just going to hear a lot of scripture today, and I will just simply comment to give you some insight and understanding. And I want to begin with Abraham. Everything in our life really begins with Abraham. You should get used to that. He's the father of our faith. Get to know Abraham's story really well. It's foundational to our faith. Some of you may know he was called by God to leave his country, approximately modern-day Iraq, Babylonia, and those places, to go to the promised land where God promised to give him a land and a descendants. 24 years pass. He still doesn't have a... He and Sarah's wife don't have a child yet. And God appears to him and changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which is really irony, by the way, because Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. So here's a man whose name is being changed to father of many nations, and he and his wife don't even have one child yet. And then a year later, it happens. God appears to Abraham, along with two other angels, in the form of human beings called a theophany, and... Genesis 18 talks about an intimate dinner that they have together. And as is customary in Middle Eastern hospitality, after that dinner, Abraham is walking out with them. And God kind of speaks to himself in what Shakespearean students would call a soliloquy, speaking loud enough for Abraham to hear. And he says this in Genesis 18. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him. There's that destiny. And then the Lord says, I'm going to, he, he reveals his agenda to him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have altogether done according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous people within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Now, the content of Abraham's prayer is not what I want to talk about, but the fact that he prayed. It's interesting, isn't it, that Abraham's first expression of his new destiny to be the father of many nations was not to call a strategy meeting or a planning session or to raise money or anything like that. All of those things are important. Abraham's first expression of his new destiny to be a father of many nations was to pray to God for a nation other than his own that was under judgment from God. You know, it is interesting that the first recorded prayer in the Bible, in this one, is a cross-cultural intercessory prayer. In fact, I learned from Don Richardson, missiologist, that this is the first cross-cultural intercessory prayer in any literature anywhere in the world. All the other people prayed to their gods for their own people, but the first prayer in the Bible is a prayer for a nation other than your own. Isn't that interesting? That should tell us something about how foundational intercessory prayer is. So there's a lot more we can do after we've prayed, but never less than prayer. That's foundational for us. Now let's skip over centuries, by the way, you, to, to Jesus in John chapter 15. Once again, we see a very similar situation. This time God appears once again, not in a theophany, but incarnational in the person of Jesus. 
and this time he is having and just finished having an intimate dinner not with one person Abraham but with his disciples and he re, and he says this to them and also he's having an after dinner conversation walk just like Abraham and God did and no longer he says do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing I have called you friends why what's the difference between a servant and a friend a servant does not know his master's agenda but a friend knows and he says everything I have learned from my father I have shown to you so just like God said to Abraham shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do Jesus said you're my friends I'm going to reveal to you my agenda everything that I've learned from the father what is the father's agenda for the nations I want to reveal that to you and then what does he say he says you did not choose me choose you but I chose you just like Abraham was chosen and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you that prayer about answered prayer is not to be wrenched out of the context it's not just a blanket say i ask god anything you want he's going to give it to you no it's in the context of the fact that we have been elevated from the status of servants of god who do not know the master's business to the friends of god that in that intimate communion with god we become co-workers with god in accomplishing his agenda for the nations and the first and foremost way in which we do that is by prayer so whether it is abraham or jesus the fundamental message is still the same when you and i become followers of jesus we become children of god we sang those beautiful songs earlier on today that gift of intimacy and communion with god is not just for private enjoyment it is so that we might know the father's heart for the nations and then play our part the foundational expression of which is intercessory prayer what i want to walk you through very briefly this morning is the rest of the new testament that ties the success of every dimension of this great commission to the prayers of ordinary men and women so jesus himself Oh, by the way, before before I get to that, uh, what did Jesus Himself say when, he, when His disciples said to pray? You know, we all know the the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven. Did Jesus say pray this way? Our Father who art in heaven, please give me my daily bread. Forgive us my trespasses and lead us not into temptation. No, that's not how we started. He said, look what He said. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So according to Jesus, when we pray. The first and foremost thing we need to be praying about is for God's glory and his kingdom to be extended upon earth and then he says give us today our daily bread forgive us our trespasses in other words all of our prayers about our daily needs whether it's our work whether it's our food whether it's shelter whether it's clothing whether it's forgiveness of sin whether it's harmony in relationships all the stuff that we normally pray about they have an overarching purpose for that there's a so that to them give me success in my work give me harmony in my relationship protect me from evil make me a holy man why so that i can do my part for the kingdom of god to come on earth that's the priority is the hallowing of his name first and everything else is under that so that so jesus made that very clear so it's still top priority the new testament links the success of every dimension of the global missions endeavor to the sustained intercession of ordinary believers For example, take Matthew 9:38. Then he said to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send out workers into his harvest field." So, laborers who will go, the people who will get into the shuttle are sent as people pray. And this is becoming even more urgent because the unfinished task 
the approximately one and a half billion people or so who have yet to hear the name of Jesus, they're all in the places where the languages are the hardest to learn, the climate is the most rigorous and demanding, the resistance is the greatest, and martyrdom is the highest. All the low-hanging fruit and missions has already been plucked. The remaining work requires very bold, powerful, courageous workers. And most of them will not come from North America. Most of them will be people who are in all these places of the world who are then going out into their immediate neighborhood. And we have an incredibly important role to pray that the Lord of the harvest will thrust them forth. It takes a very unique kind of person to go to these places. And so the unfinished task requires some very courageous laborers. And only the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit can so magnify the glory of Jesus that people will say, I don't care about my life. And I don't speak as one who's there, folks. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying to you that this is the kind of people that is needed and only Jesus' glory will ever, ever send people out and only the Holy Spirit can glorify Jesus in the minds and hearts of people. And they are, they are being raised up all the time. When you read the stories of what is happening in parts of the world, the kinds of people. I mean, you even read about the faith of faith and Lazar and people like that and you see the kind of people they are. And... We have a role to pray. Jesus said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers. So laborers are tied to our prayers. And then Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there. What is Paul asking for prayer here? Well, Paul has been preaching to the Gentile churches and he's collecting money for the Jewish churches in, in, back in Jerusalem which have been ravaged by famine and are poor. And so the Gentile churches have been donating money to this. And Paul is going to take this money back to Jerusalem, but he's not sure whether the Jewish church would welcome this. Jewish-Gentile Christian unity was a huge issue in the first century. There were theological issues, there were practical issues in there. And so Paul says, yeah, all these Gentile followers of Jesus have given money to help the Jewish followers of Jesus, but will they receive it? So Paul says, pray for, and look at that, he says, pray, agonize together with me. That's what the, in the original language of forces, agonize together with me. In other words, this must be a big deal, unity. Unity in the body of Christ was a huge deal then, and it is a huge deal right now. Satan's fundamental tactic to destroy local churches, to destroy the work of Christ, is not through sickness and stuff like that. It's through disunity within the body. And so Paul says, you pray for me. Unit Leadership Magazine many years ago did an article on the single biggest cause uh, of, of difficulties and challenges out in the mission field. The runaway, the runaway number one problem, the second one wasn't even close, was the inability for people to get along with others right on the field. From the very beginning, his strategy has been that. And by the way, it's only going to get harder because Precisely because the remaining work is in difficult fields requiring strong, powerful, visionary, independent people, guess what happens when you put six of them together on a team? And so praying for unity is a crucial, crucial uh, need. That's related to our prayers. Paul says, pray with me for that. Then Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me, that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Bold and illuminating proclamation is tied to the prayers of ordinary people. Now, 
Have you ever wondered about this when Paul says, pray for me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, who asks people to pray that they will be fearless? Fearless people or fearful people? Well, fearless people don't ask for prayer that they'll be fearless. They already are. It's fearful people like me who say, please pray for me that I'll be bold. And we never think of Paul as fearful, right? When you read the book of Acts, you think of this amazing, courageous guy who will just run into the face of danger, take on the whole world. for And yeah, he was like, he was like that. But who are the real heroes? Why is he, was he like that? Because there were unnamed Christians in Ephesus and other people who read that letter who prayed for the Apostle Paul. They're the real secret. I've done this experiment in hundreds of places where I've preached. Let me do it here again. Does anybody recognize the name Pearl Good? Have a woman named Pearl Good? Don't feel too bad. I've only had two people in 20 years ever raise their hands. Pearl Good was an elderly lady, single lady, who lived in a small apartment in Pasadena, California. And she was an intercessor. But the Lord gave her a real burden to pray for a young evangelist that came across her path. And she would pray for him. Sometimes she would pray whole nights for him. Anyway, much later on, uh, Pearl Good died. And at her funeral service, this evangelist couldn't come, but his wife came. And she got up and gave a tribute to Pearl Good. And she pointed to her casket and said, Therein lie the secrets or the remains of the secrets of much of my husband Billy Graham's ministry. How many of you have heard of Billy Graham? <laughs> Spoken to over 100 million people. Who's heard of Pearl Good? Nobody! Yet who do you think was the real force behind Billy Graham's ministry? An ordinary unnamed woman named Pearl Good. And then this one. Deliverance from depression, death and despair. 2 Corinthians 1, 8-11. We were under great pressure, says Paul, far beyond our ability to enter. So there was pressure, so that we despaired. There was despair even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Depression, despair, and death. I call this the three Ds. And by the way, in the parts of the world where the task is unfinished, these things are an everyday part of life. Depression, despair because of demonic activity, and even the sentence of death. On him we have set our hope, on God, that he will continue to deliver us. And look at this, as you help us by our prayers. So what Paul is saying is, the work is so difficult that depression, despair, and death are real everyday possibilities for us. Yes, God is the one who's going to help deliver us, but you get to help God in this process. Now, here's my question, folks. If you and I really believed that our prayers for people working in difficult places will actually lift a cloud of depression, despair, and even save them from death, wouldn't you be praying? Now look at this one, new opportunities for proclamation. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Open doors is, is the metaphor for all kinds of new opportunities. And they take many, many forms today. Visas, entry through customs. I remember a time when a, a lady associated with Rexel Congregation, Miriam Charter, used to work in Eastern Europe, in Romania, before Ceausescu's regime uh, collapsed. And she was based out of Vienna. 
uh, uh, Bible Eastern European Seminary, and she would literally have to take clandestine journeys by train, crossing the borders at certain times. And she would give us an exact breakdown of when she would be crossing the border. And we had some amazing experiences of praying uh, for angelic interventions at times. One time she had to get into a train, and she only had three minutes to make the contact. And if she didn't catch that train, she would just going to be lost there because she, if she didn't get to the place where she was supposed to be, she wouldn't have the contact who would take her to the place where she was going to minister. Everything was so secret. And just before she could get onto her train, which was on that side of the platform, another train pulled up in front of her. And she didn't have enough time to go all the way around. She didn't know what to do. She had two bags. And she felt a tap on her shoulder. And this big guy picked up the two bags and said, follow me. He walked right into this train. This door opened. The next door opened. The door to the other train opened, and both the bags were deposited. She turned around, and there was nobody there. Literal open doors. We, we have prayed for customs officials' eyes to be blinded so they wouldn't see the Bible literature she was taking in. Open doors. Open doors are sometimes natural disasters. Some of you may know, especially those from the Philippines, when Mount Pinatubo exploded some time ago, and all that ash came down one side of the mountain. There was a particular tribe of people who had never heard the gospel, 8,000 of them that moved from that side to the other side of the mountain and got to hear the Jesus film for the first time, and many of them came to know Jesus. Natural disasters are sometimes open doors. Language skills, you have to know the language. I remember one of our first international workers from Rexel, Sandra Scott, went to Mali to study the Bambara language, and she, couldn't, she had all kinds of trouble learning the language. So when she came back home on her first photo, one of our elders' wives, who was an intercessor, she basically said, every Wednesday morning, I'm going to be in the prayer room from 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock. Whoever wants to join me, join me. We're going to pray for Sandy to be able to learn the language. By the time she went back, at the end of that first year, she got the language in six months. Open doors can sometimes be the ability to learn a language. And then perhaps the most remarkable of all is the discovery of things that are called redemptive analogs. In every culture, God seems to have put some cultural uh, phenomena or, or story or idea or practice that uniquely illustrates the gospel. Don Richardson in his book, The Peace Style, tells about the time when he went to see the minister to the Sawi people. They were primitive headhunters. And he was ministering among them, and like many missionaries did, he was also a, a very basic uh, clinician. He would give out medicines and stuff like that, bandages and whatnot. And these um, tribes would fight with each other. And he was trying to t tell them to stop fighting, and they wouldn't. And so he said, uh, well, I'm leaving. I'm going to go. I won't be giving any medicines anymore. They said, oh, no, 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 no. We'll stop fighting. We'll stop fighting. He said, but why am I going to believe you? Because you see, in this culture, the highest value was not honesty, but betrayal. So when he first told them the story of the gospel, and especially the uh, Jesus' suffering, when he came to the story of Judas, they all broke out into applause. Because Judas was the ultimate betrayer. How do you proclaim the gospel in a culture where Judas is the hero and Jesus is the weakling? He couldn't. Anyway, fast forward. So this fighting was going on, and so he said, I'm leaving. They said, oh, no, no. We, we, uh, the two chiefs have had a, this powwow, and we promise you we will never fight again. He said, why should I believe you? Betrayal is your greatest value. You actually did lie. They said, oh, no. There is one custom that we have called the peace child. If the chief of one tribe gives his only son <laughs> to another tribe, as long as that child is alive, we will never break our vow. And he understood the principle of the peace child. He researched it for six months. He preached Jesus as the peace child. Hundreds of them came to Christ. And, and then he wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. 
15 different cultures where each one of them have a unique redemptive analog. That's open doors. And Paul says, you pray. Somebody prayed. And God gave the answer. And then for the rapid spreading of the message and protection. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. I mean, today there are all kinds of technological breakthroughs. Sat 7 television, the Jesus film. My, one of the missionaries that we used to support in India, Anand Chaudhary, he had a morning radio program that 15 million people, Hindi-speaking people, used to listen to every morning. I really think that all of these things have come about because somebody somewhere was praying for the rapid spreading of the Word of God to be honored. By the way, I noticed a surprise here. This next verse, notice he says here, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men because people are hostile. The very next verse says, but God is faithful and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. In other words, it makes sense for us, for Paul to say, pray for me that I, the missionary, will be protected. But he goes on to say in the very next verse that God is faithful and he will protect you, the intercessor. Isn't that interesting? It means Satan thinks the intercessor is just as important as the missionary. He'll attack them both. If there's no other, no other verse that drives home the importance of praying for our international workers, it's this one. Because Satan considers it to be so important that he will attack you when he comes out. So it's not, it's not any casual thing that I'm calling you to do. You have to be ready for that. But we don't have to be afraid either because we have Jesus on our side. And then finally a verse that kind of seems out of context with all these others are warfare verses. Look at this peacetime verse. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This seems like a very privatized kind of prayer. Pray for all of our leaders so that we'll be high, happy, comfortable, and peaceful here. That kind of goes against the grain of everything else, right? Except when you understand this. And I owe this insight to John Piper. He said the reason we need peace from all these wars that go on around us is so that we will have energy for the real battle. Because you see, there's ISIS exploding all around us and downtown Toronto suddenly becomes a risky place and there's all this scaremongering about refugees coming in and what they will do to us and stuff like that. The more things like that are going on, where are, the, where are our energies going? In? We're gonna, our energies are all consumed about how am I going to escape this physical danger? How are we going to fight this battle? And we completely forget about the real battle for the souls of men and women. And so when we pray for peace, it is not just so that we will have comfortable lives, but that we will now have emotional and intellectual margin to be able to engage on the real battle. So put all of this together, my brothers and sisters, and see this. Isn't it true that our prayers are linked by divine command to the prayers of ordinary men and women? Look at, look at all the things that are connected to prayer. Can you the next slide? Every single one of the new workers, unity between Christians, deliverance from death, depression, and despair, bold and clear proclamation, open doors, rapid spreading and acceptance of the message and, and protection of our prayers, and peace so that we have energy for the real battle. Every single one of those things is tied to the prayers of ordinary men and women. So as I drop, drop this message to a close, there are two or three things I want to say. First of all, let me suggest some next steps for you. You've got two primary areas where your church is connected to. In Guinea, 
and in Tajikistan with the Cassidy's and Lizette and, and Faith and Lazar. Choose one of them. Begin to build a relationship with them. Some of you have done it by actually traveling there, which is wonderful. Uh, others, when they come home, but you can stay in touch through various ways. Build a relationship with them. Stay updated on personal and mission-critical information. And then pray for them. Pray privately, pray with your families, pray in corporate settings. And then slowly spread the vision. Share with one or two other people what you're learning in the process. Just some suggestions on some next steps. But I'm perhaps coming to the most important part of the sermon now. This is the part that I completely rewrote in the last week. Because God has been teaching me something. See, so far I've addressed your mind and your will. I've given you instruction from the scriptures and addressed your mind. I've given you some specific things that you might want to do, the next steps, which is to the will. But if your heart and your emotions are not engaged, nothing much will happen. In fact, what we call our will is very closely related to our emotion because, you know, folks, we always do what we want to do. One guy once said, no, that's not true. If someone sticks a gun in my head and says, give me your wallet, I don't want to give him my wallet, but I'm going to give it to him. That's not really true. He wants to live, and so he'll give him the wallet. We always do what we want to do. The inclination of the will is so directly tied to the emotions. So I want to just finish by giving you three very brief thoughts that I hope, in addition to the instruction of the mind and the heart, will start to inflame your emotions as well. First of all, I want to just do a simple exercise in imagining. I asked Vijay how many adults are likely to be sitting in a service. Today is maybe less because of the time change, but he said that about 150. Now, if, 100, if each of you were to simply take two 15-minute slots a week, that's totally manageable, don't you think? Half an hour in a whole week. One 15-minute slot to pray for the Tajikistan and one 15-minute slot... You know how much prayer will go up every week from this church for these people? 37 and a half hours. That's one full work week. Just imagine. Imagine the harvest that can come in these places from such a modest investment. And like Malcolm said in the context of money, some of us can do a lot more than 15 minutes a week. But still, very modest target to get started. <coughs> Just imagine that. And you know what happens? Joy comes from the harvest. <coughs> There's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 126, which says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap in shouts of joy. He who goes weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Carrying God's seed, sowing God's seed, especially to finish the unfinished work, is a hard task. It can truly be called sowing in tears and carrying seed in tears. And our work of intercession is no less difficult. This is not easy work that we are called to. But what will sustain you is the prospect of joy. <laughs> joy always comes from the harvest. Joy is the overflow of divine abundance. Harvest is a beautiful picture of that. And when you start hearing reports back of the harvest in Guinea, of the harvest in Tajikistan, the harvest in other places as well, then you will begin to experience the kind of joy that nothing else brings in this world. What's God's real agenda then, by the way? Is he, does, does he like to see us struggle with hard disciplines like intercessory prayer? Or is his real agenda for us joy? He doesn't need your prayers. He doesn't need my prayers. He can do all his work by himself. He gives us the privilege of being co-workers with him because his ultimate agenda for your life and my life is joy. 
the kind of joy that nothing can ever take away from us and which will find its fullest expression in heaven. Many, many years ago, I remember my wife used to disciple a lady in our congregation. Her marriage was in difficulties. Her, two of her children were not walking with the Lord. Her life was very difficult. And one of the things she said to my wife was, she said, the only time I ever feel truly alive is when I'm praying for, and she mentioned a couple from our church who were working in Pakistan at that time. That's what God's promises of joy. Lastly, some of you might say, oh, by the way, I learned another thing. When I pray through the prayer letters that I get from my international workers, I get insight into God's word that I go anywhere else. Because you know what? These people are living by the word of God. God's word is lifeline for them. They get insights into God's word that I won't read in the most scholarly commentaries I ever had. I treasure their prayer letters because I learned so much about God. And your, your own walk with God will be energized as you are involved in, the, in their lives as well. Now, notwithstanding all of that, probably some of you will say, well, I just can't do this. This doesn't come easy for me. It's hard. Even 15 minutes a week, twice a week, is going to be really hard. I don't know more. You know what? That's true. You can't do it. You and I can't do it by ourselves. There's actually nothing in the Christian life we can do by ourselves. What did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. The beautiful thing is we have a Savior who's praying. Jesus himself prayed. In fact, in Psalm 2, there's a beautiful psalm that speaks to this. It was written at a time when David's life was in real trouble and the kings of the nations were fighting David. And these words were spoken to David to say, David, but you are my king and you will be fine. But this psalm was actually a psalm that anticipated Jesus. And the New Testament preachers applied it to Jesus. And this is what the psalm says. He who sits in the heavens, God laughs. He will speak to them in his wrath, the enemies of Jesus, saying, As for me, I have set my king Jesus on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That was fulfilled at the resurrection of Jesus, according to Romans. And then this statement, Ask of me, and I will then make the nations your heritage. God asks Jesus to pray for the nations. And he said, they are your inheritance. The, the people of Tajikistan, the people in Guinea, and the other parts of the world, they are Jesus' inheritance. And Jesus is praying to the Father. This that you and I are being called to do, the Lord Jesus Christ is doing right now himself. And so what he's really inviting you is to join him in his intercession. The reason why you and I are able to do this is because we have a praying Jesus. And I do this every morning when I get into my time alone with God. The first thing I do is say, Jesus, I want you to draw me now into your life of intercession. So I trust that those three things will help you bring your emotions into this call. The mind has been instructed. Next steps have been given to you. But what I trust will fuel your heart is the harvest imagined, the joy that comes from the harvest, and the fact that Jesus himself will teach you to pray. Let's pray together. Lord, it really is up to you. You taught me when I knew nothing about these things. You taught Sham when she didn't know anything about being an intercessor. You are the one that teaches us. You not only teach us how to pray, you actually enable us to pray by pouring out your own life of intercession into us. And so I just pray for each person whose heart you have begun to move here today, Father. Those that are already praying that you will have inflamed their hearts even more and those that you are about to recruit that you will begin to stir mind, will, and emotion together and energize them, galvanize them into the kind of action 
where by their own personal experience they can say, yes, this is true. I have a foretaste of joy from the harvest. In Jesus' name. Amen. For my benediction, I had a very clear impression of two words, a warrior spirit. That's what I want to bless us. I want to bless you with the love of peace in all of your relationships here on earth. And just take all the energies that are saved by that and just become warriors for Jesus. Militant against the forces of darkness in the mighty name of Jesus, built on faith upon his word, sustained by the prospect of joy in the harvest. Go in Jesus.